Well, good morning. <laughs> it's great to see you and it's great to finally be here with you. Um, I, before we look at God's word this morning, I just want to um, say thank you, obviously, first and foremostly to God um, for uh, this call to be one of, you, your, one of your pastors here, the teaching elder here at Cornerstone Hobart. We're very grateful to God for all of your patience and can I uh, in waiting for us to come. And can I just say a special thank you to the deacons here uh, at Cornerstone Hobart. They have just made the move here so much easier for Angie and I. So I was remiss at my induction uh, on Thursday night in publicly thanking them. But uh, Angie and I want to sincerely um, thank them and Libby, of course, um, the administrator who holds all things together here. Uh, so thank you. Um, David Jones prayed um, at my induction, uh, and what a great man of God he is. Uh, and he prayed that in Hobart we would see even a flicker of grace. Uh, and friends, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, can I say, even now, I don't see just a flicker, I see a flame. And as we just sang, um, wouldn't it be great as we look around the room uh, approximately, like Michael said, 150 people, over a thousand tongues uh, to sing our great Redeemer's praise, uh, that the light of the gospel would shine in the darkness uh, and that the Lord Jesus' name would be glorified. We're going to read from God's word now. So if you open your corner posts, I'm going to read, uh, I think, one of the shortest psalms, but one of the most beautiful as well. It's Psalm 133. And this is God's word. A song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Would you please join with me in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, what a great joy it is to come together on this, the day in the week where you broke the power of sin and death once and for all by resurrecting from the dead. Today is the day of your salvation, Lord. Today is the day of the Lord's favour. Lord, as we meet together this morning and as we sit at your feet, May we be like Mary, who sat at your feet while there were so many other things to be done, things that might be distracting our thoughts even now, worries, fears, even hopes and dreams that are crowding out the quietness of our own hearts to sit and to feed on your word. Lord, we ask that you would feed us from your word now, 
And we ask that you would bless us. For we ask in the name of Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. Amen. In the very first congregation I ever served as a minister, there was one particular sermon which everybody remembered. The preacher was David Cook. Some of you may know him or at least have heard of him. He went on to become the principal of Sydney Missionary and Bible College. It's the oldest uh, non-denominational Bible college in Australia. And one day he was visiting the congregation in Weewar where he had served for many, many years as the teaching elder and he began his sermon with these words. He said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David and I've served in a significant position of spiritual leadership amongst the people of God. And I've done this for quite some time. But I come before you today with a shameful confession. He said, I've been unfaithful to my wife and I'm guilty of having committed adultery. Not only that, but the woman I've had an affair with has become pregnant and she's going to have a child. The elder who was telling me this said that there was, as you could imagine, an audible gasp in the congregation. Everyone was looking at David's wife, Maxine, who was sitting in the front row, and some of the women in the church had started to weep. Maxine, though, just kept looking straight ahead at her husband and not looking at anyone. David went on. I was so ashamed of what I'd done that I did everything I could to cover it up. You see, the husband of the woman was someone who worked for me. And he was away on business when the incident took place. And so when he returned, I tried to orchestrate events so that he would think that he was the cause of the pregnancy. By this stage, a number of the men in the congregation started to stare at David with their mouths wide open. Surely this couldn't be the same man who had faithfully taught them God's word for so many years, who had lived among them and raised his children with them. But then David dropped an even greater bombshell. As if all of this wasn't bad enough, he said, I'm deeply ashamed to admit this, but when I realised how desperate things had become, I had the woman's husband murdered. No one knew about it, and no one ever would, if it wasn't for the intervention of another spiritual leader. Someone I deeply respect and who courageously pointed out to me my sin. Well, you can imagine how everyone in the congregation was responding. People were barely keeping it together. This was the most shocking and, quite frankly, 
the elder said, disgraceful thing that they had ever heard. Surely he couldn't remain as a Presbyterian minister, let alone the principal of SMBC. But then David said this. He said, as the king of Israel, I wrote down everything that happened and you can read all about it in Psalm 51. So would you please open your Bibles and look with me at, God's word, at what God's word has to say. <laughs> My friend said to me, I remembered nothing else of what was said that day. Everybody was just so relieved. He wasn't talking about himself, but he was talking about King David. But it's a powerful example of the scandalous gift of grace, which we have all received, is it not? We who are sinners and all deserving of God's anger and his wrath have been shown mercy and forgiveness. We've received the free and unmerited gift of eternal life. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Here is a trustworthy saying which deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the very worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the very worst. My old minister... Rob Smith, who writes many of the songs which we sing here today in church, said that this was the only verse in the Bible which he thought was wrong. Paul was not the worst of sinners. He was. That has to be the confession of every true believer. What is our great boast, brothers and sisters? is that we are forgiven. That's the foundation of our faith. It's that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. What do we sing in the old hymn, Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's the great gospel truth which unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. What we all have in common is that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That even though our sins uh, once were as red as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. That though once they were as red as crimson, we have become like wool. For by simply trusting in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, we have been washed clean. And we have also been clothed in his righteousness, the garments of his salvation. That is the foundation 
upon which the house of our faith is built. That is our cornerstone. You see, if you were to look around this room this morning, what is it, as Michael said, I think so brilliantly this morning, what is it that we all have in common? It's not our ethnicity. It's not our age. It's not our social class. It's not our sporting interests. Some live on the eastern shore, which I'm told is called the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> the rest of us live in what I like to refer to as Middle Earth, uh, borrowing from Tolkien. In all seriousness, though, what unites us is that we love and follow Jesus. It's that we have been sovereignly chosen to be saved. To be loved and to be known by him. That's what unites us. Now, normally in my preaching, I like to have quite an extensive outline. In fact, almost as a rule, I have at least three points. Michael will tell you. He was with me for many years. Uh, but this week, I only have one point. And it's based on what Jesus says in John 17. It's commonly referred to as his high priestly prayer. But it's one of the most incredible prayers ever uttered, and it deserves an entire sermon in and of itself. But what I'd like to say to all of us today is only one particular truth. And that is, our unity as believers is the key witness to the truth of the gospel. Let me just say that again because it's really important. Our unity as believers is a key witness to the truth of the gospel. If you still have your Bibles open, then just take a look again at what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. For our unity as believers actually testifies to the eternal unity that exists between the Father and the Son. And that's the reason why Jesus was sent to earth, so that we could be reconciled to Almighty God. As Jesus says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them... And you in me. But then look at what he says next. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see how our unity as Christians is a key witness to the truth of the gospel? I don't know about you. But I used to think that our unity as Christians, as a church, was, you know, one of those nice optional extras. Uh, it's great if you can get it, but, you know, if you don't, then that's okay. It's understandable. We're all sinful. According to Jesus, though, it's absolutely central. It's a key witness 
to the gospel. It testifies to the world that Jesus has been sent by the Father and that you and I are loved by God. I just love the way King David puts it in Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down over the beard, down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, better than the snow on Mount Wellington. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You see, unity as believers is actually a foretaste of heaven. It's a key witness to the truth of the gospel. As people see our unity, they see that Jesus has been sent by the Father and that you and I are loved by God because unity is not just a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. You notice in particular what David says in verse 2. It sounds a little strange at first, doesn't it? I mean, what's all this talk about um, this anointment running down on, on his head and over his clothes, down upon his beard? It's almost as if this guy Aaron has been sloppy in his grooming. But that's not it at all. In fact, if you understand the Old Testament background, you'll realise that this, this strange statement is actually a great sign of salvation. Turn over to Exodus chapter 30 for a minute and I'll show you what I mean. It's one of those parts of God's word which a lot of people think is a little weird and maybe even quaint, but it's actually pointing to a precious spiritual truth. Exodus chapter 30, and I'm going to read from verse 22 to verse 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the tent of the ark of the testimony, the table and all its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so that they will be most holy, and whoever touches them will be holy. And then just look at what it says next. We read, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Put it on men's bodies and do not make any oil with the same formula. That's why it was so precise. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off 
from his people. My family gives me a hard time because I love drinking sarsaparilla. (laughs) Everyone except my son hates sarsaparilla. And to be honest, I actually don't like the taste of licorice. I know that sounds weird, but the reason I drink sarsaparilla is because it reminds me of my dad. You see, we would go on family holidays to Queensland. And, you know, if you're travelling up through the mainland to Queensland, it's like a couple of day journey up to Mackay. And we would stop along the way and he would go into the pub. And because I was underage, he would buy uh, a schooner of beer and I would get a schooner of sarsaparilla. Do you know how good that feels to stand at the pub with all the other blokes and have a schooner of sarsaparilla? So every time now I drink sarsaparilla, it brings back all of these fond and pleasant memories of warm weather and being in my dad's presence. Uh, that's how certain tastes and smells work, isn't it? I'm sure you probably all have your own story about there's certain tastes, there's certain smells that remind you of certain people and certain events in your life. The point for us today is exactly the same here from God's word. Unity can only be achieved through the fragrant work of one particular mediator. Through the temple ministry of God's great high priest. That's the way unity is achieved. It's through the gospel. That's why David says in Psalm 133, it's like precious oil, the anointing oil running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Because the unity that the people of God, whether it be the Old Testament or whether it be the New Testament, is through the work of the priest. It's through the gospel. Aaron was the one who represented the people of God in the Old Testament who made atonement for their sins. And in so doing, and you think about this, in so doing, he not only reconciled them to God, but he reconciled them to each other. And in exactly the same way in John 17, Jesus is acting as our great and final high priest. That's why I was inducted, not as a priest, but as a teaching elder. All the priestly work now has been done. As the Lord Jesus said on the cross, which we'll celebrate, God willing, in a few weeks' time, it is finished. Jesus is the person in whom the whole person and work of Aaron pointed Because he alone has provided the perfect act of atonement on the cross and by rising again from the dead. As we read in the book of Hebrews, he is able to save completely. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for us. He never dies. He is risen again from the dead and right now in heaven, Jesus is interceding before the throne of God 
for you and for me. Can you see how important then our unity as believers is? It's a key witness to the gospel. For our unity is, as believers is a direct reflection of the unity that we have with the Father through the Son. And can I say, if I flip this around, that's why Satan is so eager to cause division. Because it perverts the gospel. It distorts it. Practically speaking then, how should this look in our lives here and now? Well, obviously there's an, uh, th this means an awful lot because, let's be honest, fellowshipping with each other as believers is not always easy. As incredible as this room is, of God bringing so many people together, I mean, this is amazing. Can I say, friends, this doesn't happen anywhere else in, in the community that people from so many different backgrounds would come together with one purpose like this and, and all be united, this is the supernatural act of God. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're worshipping Jesus and trusting in him, that is a sign of God's grace. But as Christians, we all know, don't we, how often we fail to encourage one another. And tragically, we fail to love one another as Jesus teaches. And unfortunately, we even from time to time hurt one another and disappoint one another, sometimes in profoundly damaging ways. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say that the church is like Noah's Ark. And that is, if it wasn't for the destruction of the flood on the outside, you wouldn't be able to stand the stench of all the animals on the inside. <laughs> because let's face it, like the ark, the church is full of all kinds of different people. There's elephants and porcupines, and rhinos and tortoises and fluffy bunny rabbits, and they're all in the same building together. At the heart of what it means then to follow Jesus and to be united is Paul's words in Colossians 3. And in particular, what he says in verses 12 to 14. In fact, why don't you turn up to this passage right now so that we can see from God's word together. Colossians 3. This would be a terrific passage to put on your fridge or even better to commit to memory this year. Because it just so perfectly sums up our responsibility to one another as a church. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. 
Now, let me ask you a really difficult question. Is there anyone in your life right now, or maybe even in the church, whom you need to forgive? Are you possibly even harboring rage or malice against them for some reason? As legitimate as that may be. I was really struck by something in the passage from James 5 that was preached last week. It's the verse that says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I think Kim Jagar let us off the hook last week because he ran out of time. But did you notice how seriously the Lord treats grumbling? Especially when it is against each other. If you think about what we've heard today, it's not a melodramatic thing to say that grumbling is demonic. Because grumbling causes division. It's the exact opposite of what the Spirit of God wants to do and what Jesus has done. When we grumble, we cause division. And when we grumble, we actually go against exactly what the Lord Jesus prayed for. Because grumbling is the complete opposite of what it means to forgive. It's not bearing with one another in love. But if I can put it like this, it's like continuing to pick at the wound that was created. You know, when a little child and you get a scab on a, on a sore and your mum your mum in particular says, don't pick it. And you're like, oh, it's so tempting. I just want to pick it. You go, why would you want to pick it? It's just going to get infected and it's just going to cause pain. There's something sinfully delightful about picking the scab. <laughs> we can't do that to each other. And you know, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord will not tolerate it. Instead, indeed, our judge is even now standing at the door of our hearts ready to judge, to hold us accountable. Let me get even more specific. Have you lately been in the habit of staying away from church or Bible study because some people haven't been vaccinated? Do you complain about their decision or maybe even how selfish they are? Or let's flip at the issue around and look at it from another perspective. Do you refuse to wear a mask, not really because of conscience, but more out of convenience? Even if it is for a conscience reason, could you not give up your freedom for another believer who thinks that you should? Even if it's only for a couple of hours each week. Could you not do that 
for another brother or sister in Christ? Is the unity of the body of Christ that important to you? You see, bearing with one another is a two-way street. It's a responsibility that we all have to one another. In his sermon at my induction this week, um, Alistair Bain asked the question, what would you say to an unbeliever to convince them of the truth of Christianity? And he gave a pretty good answer. Uh, remember, but remember what Jesus says in John 17. I've been thinking about that, his question this week. The greatest testimony to the truth of the gospel, if we wanted to convince an unbeliever that came into our meeting this morning, and maybe you are an unbeliever that is in our meeting this morning, and you were to ask me, Mark, why should I believe in the truth of the gospel? Do you know what I think I would say now? Look at this. Look at this group of people that have come together and are worshipping Jesus. Look at the variety of people that have come here and that love each other. That doesn't just happen. That's the supernatural act of God. You won't see that anywhere else. You might see crowds of people at Salamanca markets, but you won't see unity like you will see here in the church. You see, the church is the only place where you will see people coming together like this. You could even come from the north of Tasmania. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> because as we saw earlier, our unity is a key witness to the truth of the gospel. We don't see north or south, east or west, male or female, vaccinated, unvaccinated, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Because as we saw earlier, our unity as a church is a, I would even say the key witness to the gospel. Jesus says that they will know that, you, that we are Christians. How? By our love. It's a powerful and practical demonstration of both who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you see? Now, in response to God's word uh, this morning, I'd like to suggest that we do something very radical. And that is, and it's, uh, to be honest with you, this is going to make some people here really uncomfortable. But, you know, I kind of want us to feel uncomfortable right now. Because I really want us to take seriously Jesus' call and prayer for unity. And what I'd like to ask us to do is to spend the next six or seven minutes in prayer. To turn our chairs into clusters of about 10 people with the appropriate social distancing. But I want us all to pray. You'll notice that I've asked the elders this morning to strategically disperse themselves amongst the congregation. 
to lead each group in prayer. In just a moment, you'll see about five things come up on the screen to, to prompt your prayers. And can I say, particularly to the young ones that are amongst us, I'd like you to be the ones that start by praying. What I want us to do is to spend some time not talking about what to pray. I just simply want us to bow our heads and pray. To get right into it and to come together in unity as a church. Now, can I just say, I know this is radical. You might be nervous about doing something like this. The first time I introduced this to my congregation in Sydney, I had an older couple in church that had been in, in church for 50 years. And the man audibly, I can't believe this happened, but he audibly said, oh, I didn't come to church to pray. <laughs> and the congregation looked at each other and we thought, why did you come to church? <laughs> so can I encourage you, especially if you're feeling uncomfortable about this this morning, take a risk. Pray. No one is going to judge you for what you say. So please put your fears aside Maybe you need to even silently confess your sin to God, though, especially if you've been convicted about grumbling against another brother or sister here at church, that you haven't bared with them in love but harboured bitterness or resentment in your heart to them. Maybe that's what the Lord, by his Spirit, is convicting you of this morning. Can I just say, too, before we pray, you'll also notice that the first prayer point is to pray for those whom the Lord has placed in authority over us. Not only is that what Scripture commands us to do, but to my own shame, I must confess, uh, I have criticised our government far more in the last 12 months and I've prayed for them. So let's all start with that and then at the end I'll close off in prayer from the front. I think it's up on the screen, is that right? Yep, thanks Raf. Uh, is it up? Great. It'll come up in just a moment. Um, but friends, let's especially ask the Lord that we would be one, just as Jesus is one, for our witness in the community that God would make this flicker of grace into a great flame and even bushfire. Let's ask for healing where there is division, for love where there is hostility. But in particular, let's bear with each other. Let's forgive one another because just as in faith the Lord Jesus has first forgiven us brothers and sisters let's pray if you'd like to take the time to close off your prayer now Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the unity that we have in Christ, that we who were once enemies have been made your friends, that we who were once dead have been made alive, that we who were once blind can now see. Lord, we thank you that you have reconciled us to the Father through your death and resurrection. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would be one, 
just as you and the Father are one. Lord, may we be brought to complete unity so that the world might see that you have been sent by the Father and that you have loved us. Lord, pour out your spirit that we would forgive whatever grievances we have against each other. For we have first been forgiven of everything. And Lord, may we be known as a church that loves one another, that is faithful to your word, yes, but has such a deep, sincere love for each other in accordance with your word. Father, fill us with your spirit, we pray, that we would live lives that honour, please and glorify you to the praise of your holy name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you turn your seats back around, we're going to sing in response to hearing God speak to us through his word. Very appropriately, we're going to sing the power of the cross. So can I exhort us all to lift up our voices Uh, to lift up our voices to God and to also, as we sing, sing in such a way that encourages our brothers and sisters in Christ with the truths that we have just heard from God's word. Let's stand and sing the power of the cross.